on tap. A motherfucking reunion show, by the way. It's a reunion show with your dude Buzz and your dude Juice. We are here to talk about The Last Dance, the Chicago Bulls, new GM, and, and I guess much more. You know, uh, well, not a lot more because, you know, COVID has stopped us dead in our tracks. A little house cleaning. Be sure to go to ontapsportsnet.com for all your Chicago sports literature and podcasting needs. Following us on Twitter at Bulls on Tap at ONTAP Sportsnet. Following me at Buzz on Tap. And following my dude Juice at Juicy on Tap. Juice! What's going on, man? Juice! The Juice Man, Buzz. It's weird, man. Usually when we do these podcasts, we sit next to each other. And now I don't live in Illinois, which really sucks. And I'm stuck in the land of Isaiah Thomas and the Detroit Pistons in light of what happened the last night, which... We're going to talk all about it, but it's good to finally be on a podcast with you again, man. Like, it's been a long time since uh, some two uh, OGs of this whole game kind of came back together to uh, do a show, man. So, uh, good to see you, bud. It's weird. I don't don't like that you're not pounding beers next to me here. I know, and I got one here, so we're going to both drink, obviously. Crack them. But, I mean... I know. I don't like the fact that usually we do, and this this may end up being a better show because a lot of times, just for a little backup uh, background information for all the listeners, usually when I come over there, I'm there about an hour, two hours before we record, and we literally talk about everything before we get on here because we're just that good of friends, and we just have so many things to say about what's going on in the world of sports. But um, this may end up being a show where my initial thoughts kind of catch each other off guard. You know what I mean? Like your initial, cause I haven't heard you know, any reactions to the last dance yet from you. We haven't really talked about it or we haven't even talked about, honestly, the bulls whole new front office either. We can talk about that as well, but yeah, buddy, just could be on pod with you again. Absolutely, man. Let's lead right into this shit. So first of all, I think that we should save, I think you'll agree with this. We should save, I don't want to say the best for last, but we'll save the last dance for last because it's the last. That's dance. fine. So we'll get into the hirings uh, or the hiring of Mark Eversley, who Arturis just hired as his new GM. It is the first African American GM in Chicago Bulls history. Dude has an extensive background. Before, but before we get into his NBA background, dude, just like I guess it was longer than ten years ago, it'd be like 12, fifteen years ago or so, twelve, fifteen years ago, he was actually a retail store manager for Nike. And interesting. Yeah, he did so well there that they made him like they had promoted him from within in Nike. He went and he uh was the company's basketball player relation uh in the basketball player relationship division. He was up uh, the point person. So he was dealing with players that were interested in joining Nike. So right there and then it shows that obviously you think he probably knows how to talk to people pretty really well. If you're in retail and you're a store manager, you have to have you talk pretty well, I'm assuming. Um, on top of that, with Nike and talking to athletes and players, he already knows how to do all that. And this is before he even got in the NBA. He was making moves like that. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. Um, and he entered the league in 2006 with the Raptors. From uh, from 6 to 10, he was a player development assistant. Uh, 2010 to 2011, he was the assistant GM. And from 2011 to 2013, he was the vice president of college scouting. So not only... Does this guy seem to know how to talk to players? Uh, and he's very ambitious, it seems like. I mean, how he just kind of cruised into his career. So he worked very hard to get there, I'm sure. But he also knows how to scout talent and pick it out before it comes to the top, man. So I'm, I'm very intrigued by this hire. Yeah, I am too. I think uh, a big 
takeaway from this and you hit the nail on the head is with the players. And I think while this is a new front office, I don't think we can talk about what's new in place without talking and uh, looking back at the past. You know, I thought a lot of what uh, was kind of hampering the Bulls for a really long time was the way that they dealt with players. Um, in the in the back of the whole thing, I mean, it's Chicago. It's one of the most iconic logos. It's an iconic city. It's a place where basketball is at the forefront. If you're not looking at, you know, the Chicago Public League for high school basketball, you know, downtown with the Loyola run that was a, as of recent, you know, DePaul always has a storied um, college um, program as well. You know, and obviously it's not Chicago, but down in Illinois too with their runs. You know, if you look at Illinois and Chicago at, at a whole, it's a huge basketball city. And the problem was, is, you know, they brought, we were bringing guys in here like LeBron. They were bringing guys in here like Dwayne Wade, ready to come play, you know, back in that, that free agent summer that everybody talks about. And the big takeaway from that was, you know, they could never close that big fish. They could never reel that guy in. And I think that the big thing on this is the takeaway is obviously this guy seems like he's able to work with people and he's able to penetrate players' minds and kind of, you know, level with the with the average player today. And, and and I think that this is a good opportunity for the Bulls to make, you know, Chicago and the Bulls brand hip. You know, you can kind of trade the whole thing out of, you know, Chicago for so many years post-Michael was they don't take care of their players. They're a place that you don't want to play for because, you know, with the Luol Deng, with the injury stuff, and it really wasn't fun under Tom Thibodeau. But now you can kind of jump into, you know, this day and age of player and make it, a fun brand to play for, a fun city to be in. Change the whole narrative of what your sports franchise has looked like for the last 20-plus years and flip it upside down and be the cool hip one at the table that everybody goes, I want to play on that squad. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I agree with all that. Like, you know, getting into the new age of the NBA, attracting these free agents, all of that. I, I definitely agree with everything that you just said here. So we'll move on from the Raptors and where he was there into the Wizards. Now, he was the vice president of scouting. So then he gets another job within the scouting because, obviously, from 11 to 13, he was VP of college scouting for the Raptors. And with the Wizards, he was a VP of scouting in general, uh, 13 to 16. He then moves to the 76ers. And this is where I've seen some people kind of bat their eye a little bit because you kind of know what happened with them. They made a couple bad moves. They made a couple bad mistakes um, recently, too. I mean, obviously they have Embiid and Simmons, and we know they're very, very good players, uh, no doubt about it, but they did hit a couple little snags there. But he's a senior vice president of player personnel, or he was before he took this job, and he was the vice president of player personnel. So, I mean, again, the, the... experience that he brings and I guess to kind of take what you said like you know the hipness that he's going to bring to the Chicago Bulls front office him and our tourists being around the league as long as they have been seeming to know how to build teams that are playoff contenders and be a part of those kind of front offices it's going to be huge and I, I haven't got to ask your opinion yet I don't mean to throw you a curveball here but what, what do you think sure. about our tourists I this is the if you're looking at the Bulls as a whole in the last 20 years, like I said, I think in a lot of ways they were stuck in the we're just going to keep doing what we're doing kind of mentality. You know, the the front office stayed the same. I mean, let's let's face it. In our lifetime, we've only seen, what, two GMs, three GMs? Yeah. I mean, it's not 
I mean, GMs go here, and I mean, how many White Sox or uh, not White Sox or Cubs GMs have I seen? You know, I mean, it's or Bears. You know, cycle in and out. You know, it's. I I think that I and I attribute a lot to who he's brought in already. As I'm going to be the czar of this whole thing, the Theo Epstein per se. I'm just going to bring in talent. I'm going to bring in guys who are able to provide different perspectives. And I was listening on the radio a couple weeks ago. Uh, to his interview when he was introduced as the uh, as a new, uh, basketball operations manager and uh, president of basketball operations, and uh, it was it was good to listen to that. He wants to bring in other people who have different opinions than him. I don't. I think that that's what makes this thing tick. And if you look at all the different um, championship caliber front offices, they have those guys underneath them that go, "Hey, yeah." You know, I, I look at it this way, you look at it this way. And look at even, you know, revert back to the last dance from last night. You know, Dennis Rodman wasn't brought in under Jerry Krause. He was brought in under the assistant GM because they said, hey, I have a different viewpoint of this. So it's it's going back into, you know, good practices that I don't think that the Chicago Bulls did in a long time. I'm excited because at the point that we were at with the Chicago Bulls front office, they were just excited for change. No matter who it was, we were going to be excited about, but the Bulls ended up hitting just a grand slam with all of this. And that's what's kind of refreshing, you know, because you don't know much about Jerry Reinsdorf and, and his ability to cut, you know, the ties from some of these guys he's been with for forever. It's kind of hard as a Bulls fan to say, yeah, I expected this to be so successful in a recruiting process because he – looked apprehensive to move away from his guys for so long that you wondered if maybe in the short term he would just hire just to get it out of his hair. You know, it's and not do the due diligence to bring the right people in. So I'm excited about it. I, I think that in a lot of ways, none of this is completed and none of it means as much until they change the guy behind the bench. Um, and I think that's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. But I've been telling everybody that none of these moves mean a damn thing if Jim Boylan's coaching next year because you're going to see the same regression because that's the guy that needs to put all the pieces together. Right, exactly. And that's the point of the front office to bring in a guy that can put all the pieces together on the court. And we've seen these reports that you know uh, Jim Boylan feels safe, he's not worried, he's reached out to our Taurus. You know, they didn't want to make any rash decisions, and I have defended the rash decision thing until I've been blue in the face so far. We don't know if the season's coming back. We have absolutely no idea when or if it'll return this year. There's no reason to, to fire him right now until we get word that, okay, hey, yeah, this is uh, season's going to resume. Let him get his last 16 games in or, or whatever was left. Let him go. There's no reason to do it now. Just let him go. They want to, I think they have the right to evaluate him. I mean, this is. I mean, we can sit here with pitchforks and whatever and say, oh, fire him, fire him. Do I believe that? Yes. Do you believe that? Yes, but they're new to the city. They're coming in and they're doing a job. They would be doing everybody a disservice if they didn't at least do their homework and due diligence on the guy. And it's also a respect thing, I think. Yeah, I also think that who knows who – what candidates emerge, you know, in the next couple months opposed to, you know, if you don't do it now and you just let the guy play out his contract, you're going to have the whole off season to evaluate who you want to have behind that bench. If you were to fire him now, maybe there's a little bit more pressure to put just Joe Schmo behind it already 
to to propel them through those first 16 games obviously or those last 16 games obviously probably be an interim guy but i do think that them waiting till the end of the season and then just coming together to evaluate it all together all at once is a better move than just he gets in fires him right away you know i, I think that that really doesn't help anybody in this this scenario you know what i mean maybe you can make the argument that if they fire him now they're not learning those terrible tendencies but let's face it They've had this guy behind the the bench for the whole season and then the season before. So what any bad tendencies he's wanted to teach, he's already taught. So it really doesn't make a damn difference whether you fire him now or fire him at the end of the season. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, like I said, for them to do their due diligence, I can see why they'll leave it just for right now. And as far as coaching searches go, you have a lot of fans after Kenny Atkinson, right? I'm more on, I guess I'm more on the other side, more towards Dave Yeager, and I want to tell you why. Because a lot, I feel like a lot of people forgot about Dave Yeager, and I don't really get. Mm-hmm. I, this is a conversation. I think, man, this goes back to the Outcasts. We had a conversation like this. Dave Yeager has shown time and time again that he can get a lot out of a young team, but he can also coach a veteran team. He was in Memphis with Zebo, Conley, Tony Allen, uh, um, Marcus Saul. I mean, that squad over there. Rudy Gay was there, I think, with him, or was Rudy Gay might have been gone already, actually. But regardless, he had veterans over there that he was a constant staple in the Western Conference playoff picture. Then he gets let go because, you know, Memphis kind of, you know, they got old, started going down, and then he goes over to Sacramento. He ends up getting fired from Sacramento because they wanted him to tank, and he's getting the most out of these young guys, and they're right outside the playoff picture. It wasn't just, oh, they came in 10th or 11th place. They were fighting for a playoff spot. So a a coach like that that can kind of, I, I guess, in my mind, get the best out of vets and get the best out of young players, I think would be a great hire here. Obviously, like you said, we don't know who's going to hit the market. We don't know what it's going to look like yet. COVID has really stopped everything dead in its tracks, but I will piggyback off the first point you made getting into this. Nothing changes if, in my mind at least, if Jim Boylan is behind or in the head coaching chair next year. There's just no, there's nothing is going to change. It's going to be the same old story, and we're going to watch – are what three lottery or you know upper lottery picks seventh pick in the draft three years in a row we're just going to watch them keep going down and that's what yeah happen. and that's and that's the thing too i mean you can look back to i i i think that the downfall of john paxton i think you can kind of just group into two different things him not being able to reel in the big fish and the fact that i don't think he ever put a decent coach behind that bench that they all agreed with you know, I mean, you can talk about Tom Thibodeau, but when you win the number one overall pick and you have one of the best players in the league, yeah, coaching's great, but it's it's clear that once that all broke down, Tom wasn't the guy anymore. So in my opinion, those is what the two things that you can you can attribute to his downfall. I think the interesting part with hiring a new coach and why they're going to wait even more now is now that you're bringing in all these different minds, you want to get it on one same page of, how this thing's going to look in the future. You know, I mean, there's there's different ways you can go. You can go and draft a bunch of defensive guys and lock people down, or you can go out and go the run and gun route. The Bulls are technically at a spot where they have a lot of guys who are in a mix of both. You know, you have your Wendell Carters who are great on defense, and maybe they could score a little bit. But then you have your Zachs who would probably prefer to play a faster pace. Not saying that Wendell can't, but I'm just saying, like, bringing these guys in, that's the two options I think that the Bulls have right now. And putting the right guy behind the bench 
is going to institute which route that they go. So, and that, that'll kind of institute and it'll kind of influence how that they draft as well going into that seventh pick, because when you're looking at where they're at, I mean, obviously we don't know they're going to get the seventh pick. I just say it because let's face it, (laughs) that's been our destiny for forever. Right. But you know, looking at the picks that they're going to have next year, you know, the pick they're going to have next year, it'll be up there. And it's going to, there's some decent talent. Obviously, it's not a deeper draft like it used to be uh, over the last couple of years. It's, it's a lot of guys that you're kind of question marking about. There's really no clear number one either. But there's some talent in there that he can, he can forge his roster going into this year. And honestly, probably could talk about, talk to some players that are on the free agent market right now just to see, hey, do you want to come and play here yet? I mean, I don't know a full list of guys yet. I haven't looked at that. Obviously, I I don't want to jump into NBA offseason yet. I'm kind of still hoping we get a couple games so we can go. But not only that, but at least experience the playoffs on television, you know? Or just have something to watch other than Tiger King for the fifth time. But (laughs) I'm just saying, you know, I, I haven't looked at free agency yet, but looking at his resume and Arturis and, and, um, new GM Eversley, we can look. And these these guys can come together and make a plan. And I think that, that the first step of that is to formulate who's going to coach this team. And then you kind of, from that, assemble with the three of those guys on how this whole thing is going to play out. And I think that it's it's it, it would benefit them if they took some time to evaluate and then brought in a coach. Right. I, I, I can agree with that for sure. Definitely can agree with that. So, moving forward, now that we talked about Eversley, and, you know, obviously we'll be on more, uh, you know, when we find out what's going on with the season and all that, we could do shows about, you know, over free agents, just to throw out a couple names out there. Sure. Obviously, AD is a free agent. Um, he has, I believe, an option. So, he, you know, he, he can be able to opt out. You have Fred Van Fleet, local guy. You kind of need a point guard. People, I know people like Kobe White. I like Kobe White, too, but... Van Fleet's only 26 years old, so he's somebody to look at. You have uh, Andre Drummond, who was traded to Cleveland. He's on a player option. We really don't need to add another big, but he's such a dynamic rebounder and a shooting offense. If you have nothing but shooters around him, kind of a sexy pick in my or a, a signing in my eyes because he's still young as hell. Um, you have Gordon Hayward with a player option, Danilo Gallinari. Those were just a few, just to name there. So they have a lot of work to do. Um, they've been around the league. The, just a ton of experience between those two guys in general. So I'm very excited for that, but let's get to what I guess this is. Well, we just did talk about the current bulls biggest news, man, but let's get into this last dance. We haven't talked sh- any shit about that yet. Any of it. That's why we, we can go all four episodes right here. if We really want to. Right. So, well, I, I mean, just, we could do a synopsis, uh, you know, what we've thought of it so far. Um, sure. I could see why MJ thought that he'd come off as a dick, but I can see why, or I, I could see why people think that, but I am too blinded by the fact that the banner hanging behind me right now has six goddamn rings on it, so that guy can go smack someone's mom. I'll be fine. I don't, <laughs> I don't care. You know, like, whatever. I don't care if he looked like a dick because, you know, a lot of people were kind of throwing him shade last night because he still holds on to that grudge, and I know this is one of your favorite things. He still kind of holds on to that grudge of Isaiah Thomas. So Yeah, I... I think the whole Michael Jordan coming off like a dick thing is hilarious to me because if you're from Chicago, you know going into this thing that Michael Jordan probably, in your eyes, wasn't the greatest person ever. It's not that you like Michael Jordan because he's charitable or that he gives the best advice. 
you like Michael Jordan because he's probably something that you'll never be. And that's not imagine. It's not a matter of of basketball talent or anything like that. Michael Jordan probably would have been the best at whatever he decided to do, just because he is that goddamn competitive. I don't think me or you or anybody we've ever come into contact with has the same competitive spirit as Michael Jordan. And that's why Chicago loves him. If you look at the background of what the city is, it's a hardworking city. It's a city that, you know, wears, you know, a chip on its shoulder. It doesn't get the respect in the media. And Michael Jordan, in a lot of ways, was that until he won a championship, right? I mean, the last night him talking about Michael Jordan was the it's the greatest show that never wins. You know, I thought that was a another thing that I've always heard going in before he won that first championship. But I didn't I didn't go into this thing going, I'm gonna think that Michael Jordan is ten times worse of a person because I think I already had the background information that Michael wasn't a really good person. I mean, he he wasn't a good teammate, really, when you look at it. He wasn't a good friend, clearly. Because none of these guys really contact or talk with Michael after this whole you know season stuff um, and his whole career. But realistically, I just have little expectations for MJ being you know portrayed in a in a bad way. Because to be honest with you, I knew it going in. I I think that obviously everybody's talked about like Jerry Krause, but. I think somebody who's really kind of getting let off the hook, and I don't know if it's because he participated or he owns the team, but Jerry Reinsdorf to me is he's getting like the pampered treatment out of all of this. Oh, yeah. Because in my opinion, out of all the people who could have stopped this and had this team back, it was was Jerry. Jerry had the connection to all of them, every single one of them. And if he came down as an owner – and pony up, ponied up the cash, ponied up whatever he needed to do to get them all in a room to figure it out. I truly think in the 99 season, they could have got all those guys back together and, and tried to make another run. Now, I don't know if it would have worked. I mean, if you look at this 98 season, it's clear that you know Michael Jordan really grinded in this first half of it just to get there. And obviously oh, it's going to show even worse, I think. Yeah, he, he Right, because he really didn't. He didn't Pippen for forever. Right. You know, I'm but gonna fuck up I think summer. the hardest. <laughs> what's that? Yeah, right. I'm gonna fuck I, up my yeah. The, how about that line? But I mean, I just think that, and I hope that sometime and at some point in this documentary, Jerry gets ridiculed at least a little bit for not being the adult in the room or the owner or the the big hand of the law that could come down and say. You guys are really arguing over fifth grade bullshit here. Go until you get knocked off the totem pole. And when that happens, all of you can go. Yeah. You know, I mean, he could have paid Pip. And Pip and Michael probably would have taken a pay cut if it meant that all of them were together and they got to keep Pip for another year. Yeah, I could see that for sure. Um, as far as the Jerry Reinsdorf pampering goes, he's taken it. Year after year after year after year, we've been ridiculing Jerry's Reinsdorf before this stupid documentary even aired. And not, I'm calling it stupid. I love it, but you know what I mean. Um, you know, but yeah, his portrayal to people that are maybe not in the know. I mean, think about it, man. I've read the Jordan Rules. I read all that shit. You know, I mean, we grew up reading who? Sam Smith. 
you know, and mm-hmm. I know he worked for him now. He works for him now, but he didn't have, he wasn't singing that same tune years ago. No, no, so, definitely not. You know, and, and, and I mean, you know, I don't know whatever happened to him. I know he's a piece of shit in real life, but Jay Mariotti, <laughs> we grew up, you know, listening to him too. So like I had pretty good insight of what the Bulls inner workings were. Now, as far as Jerry Krause goes, this is where I relate him. Jerry Krause did have a, a complex where he just was like, dude, like, why isn't the spotlight on me? But you see in a lot of the film they show, those guys, those fucking guys dogged him a little bit, you know? And I could see why, sure. I could see why he'd be all pissed off, and I could see why he'd want to prove his worth to build another contending team. I give Jerry Krause tons of credit because, yeah, he didn't draft Jordan, but he did get Pip. He did get Horace Grant. He did trade for Bill Cartwright. Uh, he did get packs. He did, you know, uh, he did bring in Robin, even though he didn't want to. He did bring in Steve Kerr. He did bring in one of the most underrated moves, I think, of all time in Ron Harper for that last repeat. Ron Harper is a fucking beast. No one talks about Ron Harper. People should talk about Ron Harper. He's finally got his little video thing where he goes, it's fucking bullshit that he couldn't, you know, guard Jordan. <laughs> you know, he, he finally getting some national recognition here. You know, he brought in Tony Kukoc. Jerry Krause did good things. But... It's almost unforgivable across all sports, dude. I'm talking football. I'm talking hockey. I'm talking baseball. It's almost unforgivable to let arguably the definitive greatest of all time go, and he didn't want to go. And then Phil, you had two of the two of the greatest. I know Phil had Kobe after and Shaq. Let's be honest here. Phil had a lot of fucking talent, okay, on, oh, yeah. on, on the teams that he was on. But he was able to corral that talent and do what with it? Exactly what we were just talking about with Boylan. He was able to win with it, you know, and, and do what he had to do. So I do blame uh, Jerry Krause. Now where I blame – this is where I blame Reinsdorf now because I wanted to get to that point you made as well. <clears throat> I told Scotty Pippen not to sign that contract. Hey, man, kudos to you, motherfucker. But he clearly outperformed it, but he said, don't come back to my door after you sign this contract. If that was the actual conversation that Jerry had with Pip and said, if you sign that contract, you get pissed off that you think you should be earning more. Don't come back to me because I don't think you should sign it. I think it's a bad contract. And Pip signed it anyway for that financial security. Pip's agent should have been fired if he had one. You know, I, it, now I understand Pip comes from a, uh, uh, you know, a, a poverty-stricken place, you know, and, and a big family, and he was just trying to do what he had to do to provide. I respect the fuck out of that. And I appreciate that as a man standpoint because he was taking care of his. But at least Jerry's straight shot with him. But that doesn't mean I'm going to let him off the hook. I, th- I still think he's a jag off for what he did. He had two. Pippen was arguably the second best player in '94 and '95 while Michael Jordan was gone. He was second to who do you think? Hakeem Olajuwon. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, like so. I just this is the way that I've always looked at Jerry Reinsdorf and this whole. Just clusterfuck of a situation. Jerry buys the team right before they sign and, and get Michael Jordan. Yeah. Michael Jordan grows this brand into the brand that it is today. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And makes it makes Jerry rich. Yeah, richer. And, and, at, and at the end of the whole thing, you don't reward that guy who literally did. I mean, we can talk all we want about – Tony Kukoc and, you know, Ron Harper and all these guys that were role players. And they, they were great moves. Don't get me wrong. In a lot of ways, they don't win as many championships if they don't bring in the role guys. You're right. But with that said, they don't grow the brand 
without Michael Jordan. So at the end, when they when they all sided with each other, and Jerry pretty much went with Krause and said, "Michael, I'm, for, I'm pretty much forcing you into retirement. Scotty, get the hell out of here." And and that was the end of '98. To me, that's a huge slap in the face for all the work that Michael Jordan did. And I, I just don't think that Kraus did the same amount of work that Michael did. And I think that if Jerry had half the balls that he should have at that time, he should have said, Mike, I appreciate everything you've done. We are going to build this thing until you want to stop. Till you. Till you tell me that you want to retire. And I will bring back whoever you want to bring back at whatever amount of money they demand. Just to make sure that by the end of this, you know in your heart that you didn't leave anything on the table. And that's what this whole last dance thing is about. It's about the fact that they're going to talk about, you know, them winning the 98 team and it getting blown up after. And, you know, maybe that was the time. You know, you can make the argument that maybe that was the time to move on to it. But if Michael Jordan of this day is kind of saying that he's a little upset that that's how it ended, maybe he thinks he could have won it in 99. Maybe he thinks that, you know, bringing a guy in here or there would have helped and they could have, you know, going into the 2000s they could have contended but i i just i think it's a huge slap in the face and i think jerry reinsdorf won't be held accountable for it in this doc because he's participating in it and he owns the team and i think in a lot of these things espn has a lot of back kind of narrative and and some some kind of what would you say just kind of some some things that they can't touch you know what i mean because obviously it's a conflict of interest with business you know, the Bulls are a huge brand. They sell out. They, you know, people watch them on television. And obviously the NBA and ESPN and ABC, and they, they all are, are in bed together. You know what I mean? That's, that's, they're all making money off of each other. And I just think at the end of it, if, if they piss off Jerry, you're pissing off current business. And I just think that if, if we were doing a total, and I'm sorry, I'm rambling. You're not. But if we were doing just a, a documentary, me and you talking about this. I think that there's a lot more blame and there's a lot more light shed on Jerry and, and his lack of just assert, being assertive. Because I just, even with the White Sox, you've talked about it. He's not that assertive guy that comes down and says, this is how things are going to be. You know, spend the money. For forever, you guys are spend the money. And, and that's just not Jerry. And that's, I just wished that, that was more in the light in this stock than it has been in the first four episodes. You know, it's funny you say that because the, the way I look at it with Jerry it seems like he's this guy that hires a strong, a strong-willed guy. I mean, let's think about Paxson. Let's throw Paxson in here for a minute, because we grew up with mostly Paxson as the GM. Honestly, you know, I mean that we can coherently remember. You know what I mean? Because we were young before when Kraus, lost, you know, was done in two thousand three. We weren't super young, but you know, you know what I mean. But he hired Paxson, who's like a guy who chokes out a coach or gets into shouting matchups, and just that. Just, Jerry seems to be like, hey, I got the money. I bought the team. Go do it. If you think it's best, then go do it. And that's why I feel like sometimes, and then he's loyal to these people because he's like, well, they've been working for me for a long time and I want to take care of them. It's respectful. But it's funny that people always say that loyalty thing about Jerry Reinsdorf. This is a question that I want to bring up to you because I think it relates to what we're talking about. And it's a fair question. There's no way. Do you think that Jerry Reinsdorf wanted to pay Michael Jordan $63 million over two years in 1997 and 98? Michael Jordan was grossly underpaid, bro. I'm going down this contract via basketball reference, this contract history. 95-96, you know what he made? 3.8 yeah, like mil. Yeah, like 2 million. 3.8 yeah. mil. 
and, yeah. and that and that was and that was on the downslope. The most he made in his career, besides the two years at thirty and thirty-three million, was in ninety-three and uh, ninety-four, where he made four million per year. <laughs> Scotty Pippen, who we were just talking about being grossly underpaid, even with the sixty-three million dollars in ninety-six, ninety-seven, and ninety-seven, ninety-eight that Jordan made, he still didn't make as much as Scotty Pippen did in his playing career. You gotta tell. You know why? Like what? How? How? Yep. Was Jerry and that's why, like this whole '99 thing. That's why this whole end of this thing doesn't make any goddamn sense to me. Because if you would have told Michael Jordan that, hey, I know your contract's up. I just paid you sixty million for the last two years. How about I pay Scotty thirty million for one more year? You know, just to pay him, and you can go back at it again in '99. I just think that that's a scenario that Jordan would have looked at and said, I don't care because I'm making enough on Jordan brand anyway. Oh, yeah. I don't care. Nike was I you mean, know, obviously it, the, the reason he had fucking yachts yeah. and all that shit. And he know? knew he was going to be a cajillionaire after this whole thing was over anyway. Right. You know, it's a matter of he knew he was going to go in and own a team after. And that's a whole other can of worms that I hope that we can get into one of these days. But I think the biggest slap in the face is the fact that Jordan builds a brand and Jerry never gives him anything after it when he was clearly interested in owning a team or having some stake in a team or, or being a GM. You know, I mean, imagine if the Bulls would have pivoted and and had Michael Jordan as their GM after, you know, how, how many years that they paid out. Definitely what if the deal Kobe. was? Definitely would have had Kobe. Well, imagine, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, imagine like, imagine, okay, imagine they play 99 and 2000. Those are the seasons that – and Michael just says, I'm just going to hang it up. And instead of hanging it up and going in to, you know, the the Wizards and the Bobcats and all that other crap, what if he becomes the GM of the Bulls? The team that he built with the greatest player ever in your front office is making your decision. And don't get me wrong. We can talk about how, you know, he wasn't the best of GM in, in, in Kwame, Washington. Kwame Brown. Right. But <laughs> – with that said, don't you think that he's at least a little bit more successful in Chicago opposed to playing in Washington, uh, being a GM in Washington? Well, it's a, it's mean, a fair, it's a fair question, and, and the reason it's I a mean, fair question is because if you if they if you if we go with your theory right now, right, where he, you know, we do ninety nine two thousand, we hypothetically we went on their ship or we fall short, and then he transitioned into a front office role, right? The Bulls are still up here at that time, and if people can't see me right now, but my hands above my head. They're still up here as one of the most popular franchises, and now their player that's been with them his whole career is now transitioned to a front office role. Players are probably like, okay, if I go dominate for this city, something good's going to happen for me too. Yeah, and that's exactly why like today when Kevin Garnett comes out and says that he doesn't want to play there because he he knows that they that's how they treated the best player ever. You know, they, they used him for spare parts, and don't get me wrong, Michael Jordan made a lot of money. I'm not... I'm not saying that to the listeners here that, you know, Michael Jordan wasn't taken care of at the end. You know what I mean? But with that said, we read off those those numbers of what he was making and being grossly underpaid to go win championships. Why? Because that was what was, that's that's what was important to him. But at the end of his this whole thing, they treated the best player ever in the worst way ever, in my opinion. I I, I think that it was Hey, Mike, thanks for all the memories. Now get the fuck out. You know what I mean? In a lot of ways. And that's not fair to him. And I could see why there's a lot of animosity. And that's why, like, I, 
you always hear about how Mike hated Krause, but you don't really hear about a lot of stories about how Mike and Jerry's relationship was post this. Right. Well, I mean, I mean, I, I, you have to assume it wasn't that great if fucking Reinsdorf signed with. Jerry no, you, I mean, you can't. You can't. But I mean, with that said, too, like not to know that MJ was the greatest. Like, you know what I mean? There's no way. No, he and, was ignorant enough to be like, yeah. Yeah, Jerry's going to build another contender. He had to know what he had while he had it. Everybody else knew, you know? Yeah, and that's the – I just feel like so much was left on the table, and I always thought that. You know, Mike obviously struggled through that 98 season, and they did too as well. But, I mean, Pip was hurt. You know, you had a lot of guys that were kind of distracted, in my opinion. If you're looking at this whole documentary in, you know – in the first four episodes, it's clear that all of them are distracted by what's looming at the end of the season. And I think it's, I think it's going to be even more impressive, you know, looking at Michael's 98 championship, looking back at it after this whole thing's done is, you know, all he had off the court to go through, you know, including, you know, all the guys he had to beat to get there. I mean, they talk about Carl Malone and John Stockton is two, two is the best to lace them up, you know, and there were, there were guys, you know, prior to that, they had to beat, you know, Gary Reggie Miller Payton, and Sean Kemp. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, Jesus, you know, I mean, they they played some tough fucking teams, man. And and not just tough in the way of competition, tough dudes like dudes. that. Yeah. Were, can you imagine running into fucking Sean Kemp? No, that, that guy's suck. built like that guy's built like a brick shithouse, man. Well, yeah. Dude, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, can you imagine if, you know, be, even being Rodman in those finals, like and you have Kemp. You know, you have Gary Payton coming down the lane with a trailing Sean Kemp. He dishes it off. Kemp jumps 95 fucking feet in the air. He's, you know, 200-something pounds. I mean, they played tough teams. I, I I mean, arguably, I think the easiest route they had for a championship, I don't know what you would say it was fair, but maybe it was fucking Phoenix. Yeah, even that one, though, that's Barkley's best year. Right. You, you know, know that's, right. that's he's an MVP in that. I mean, so he – there's – there's just so many guys that at the end of this, you're going to look back and said, I mean, look at, I mean, a lot of people make the argument that if Mike didn't go play baseball, they would have won eight in a row. I, and I then you're so. putting, and then you're putting Nikki Olajuwon on that same, uh, oh, yeah. on that same list. Oh yeah. You know? So, I mean, you're looking at that. Who knows how many they could have won. And that's, I think that's, what's the saddest part about this is his greatness was just derailed at the end of it. You know, it was he had more in the tank, and it was clear because he came back and played again. And when he was forty, he was—I mean, he was still pretty damn serviceable. Let's let's face it. I mean, he wasn't the Jordan we had seen before. He's averaging twenty but, points a game at forty years old, right? But the guy was the guy was still box office. He still wanted to go watch that man. I, I sounded like Stephen A. right there. He was still box office. Still he box still office. wanted to go. It's blasphemy that they ran him out of there. I tell you, it's blasphemy. <laughs> it's, it's not S and nine. It's S and ten. S eleven. No, all right. So, but just looking back at like just this whole doc, it's it's just to me in this first half of it, and I I probably will get more emotional and sad about it as it goes on, but I think that they left way more on the tank, and they all know it because they're coming back together to pretty much cry over it, you know, not cry over it, but discuss the fact that, you know, there were some things that needed to be said. And I think a lot of them aren't being said till now, right. you know, that's, this is the, so it's, it, I I'm enjoying it. I want your thoughts on it. Are you like, is there anybody that you're looking at right now in this doc where you're like, you're, you're showing good or you're showing really bad. You know what I mean? Like 
vice versa. Or maybe there's some guy that you're you're like, man, they're really glossing over in a lot of ways that he hasn't had the time for the first couple episodes. They've glossed over Jerry. That that's a big issue that I I had a lot. Um, as far as like the second three or uh, three peat goes, I mean, I I feel like they've hit everybody that I've wanted to really see them talk about. Yesterday's episode when they actually had Isaiah in depth on that, and then having like you know the interactions between him and Jordan. I've gotten pretty much everything I wanted from this docuseries besides, an, uh, I guess, the answer that I'm searching for from Jerry Reinsdorf. But truly, when you watch the man talk, I don't, I still don't, to this day, I don't think he thinks he did anything wrong. Yeah, and I, I don't even think employee. if, I don't even think if you, if you got him like in a bar and asked him, hey, off the record, truth serum, you know, would you go back? I still don't think Jerry would go back and change it. I, don't think, so. I think Jerry, in his, where he's at in this whole story, he got his six championships. He grew the brand to levels that he probably didn't expect it to be. And, I mean, let's face it. When he bought the team, the Bulls were a joke. Oh, yeah. And not a lot of people were. Cocaine circus, baby. Right. We're, yeah, right. That was also, that's, that's also another hysterical undergloss thing that yeah. I think needs – I wanted way more time about Michael's rookie year with Cocaine Circus. I wanted like a whole episode worth of, you know, Mike and because can you imagine like a young kid like Michael Jordan already being the best player on the team, just walk into just a bunch of cokeheads and tell him, hey, this is how this is going to be. I want to win, and then just laughing because they at the point that they were at, they didn't care. You know, they're they're, it's that was the NBA. Mike was on a different level than all those guys. And it's just I, th- I wanted conversations more with those guys to bring it. I, g- I can imagine why they didn't, just because you, they're probably a huge liability in bringing in for the docuseries to even have interviews. Right. But I wanted more about that first year cocaine circus because I'm sure that that just ate Michael up. You know what I mean? Like Mike was the type of guy that wanted to come in and win right away. And just to be surrounded by just – just a circus, like you said, just a circus of guys who realistically didn't have aspirations to be anywhere near the top, maybe even make the playoffs. A lot of them probably wanted the time off at the end of the year. Right. But I just wanted more time out of that. That's and and you know who I think is not getting enough airtime either? Horace Grant. Yeah, well, I, you know, I kind of thought the same thing, man, but when when I read the last dance, bro, I assumed it was the last three peaks. I, I'm still shocked they're going back to the first one sometimes. Like it does. You kind of gotta though, well, don't you? You, you kind of gotta set the the stage for, you know, what's gonna happen at the end, and right. that way that the whole audience can look back and say, you know, right. this is what everything they went through. But go ahead. Uh, maybe Horace had some rough feelings on it, man, because you know he's employed by the team now. So yeah, maybe, that's pretty. Maybe, and, maybe and you know, you bring up a good point that I didn't think of. Yeah, he doesn't probably want to incriminate himself, man. With the, I mean, he's employed by the team now. He's an ambassador for the team. He does that, you know, those spots on NBC uh, Sports, and you know Jerry's got his hands in that too. So I mean, it's just <laughs> he he might want to be careful, and I think that's fair. Like even when John Paxson was on there, John, and you know, and obviously he was still the GM at the time. This was recorded long ago, a couple probably about a year or two years ago. This you know this docu series, but I mean he was very prim and proper. You know what I'm saying? Like he, I I wouldn't blame you know, Horace for not wanting to go on there for saying some stupid shit. Because, I mean, look what happened to Pip. Pip got fired like a year and a half ago. We all just found out about it. Yeah, yeah, which is 
mind blowing that I didn't know that. You know what I mean? The fact that that was, and that's another weird thing that was just glossed over. You know, the fact that there's no news on this until now we're finding out that he was, it, it's just another weird Jerry. It is. Ism kind of thing that just, it makes me mad that this is, I think it, I truly believe this by the end of this documentary, it's going to be, it's going to be portrayed as a player's Krause issue. And the fact of the matter is it was way more a player's and Phil versus front office in general. Right. And Jerry is just kind of sitting in the corner doing his interviews when they ask him. And and even those, man, he looks, he looks like he doesn't want to answer a question. No, he doesn't. Yeah, you know, in a lot of ways, body language, he's just kind of, would you say aloof is fair? He's kind of like he, yeah, like he or, was acting like he was aloof about a lot of things. He goes, well, I just know that Jerry said this, and this was the uh, route that he was going to take. And, like, it's just kind of like, motherfucker, are you for real? Like, Yeah, it's odd. I, I had another question for you, too, because obviously last night was the emergence of uh, B.J. Armstrong on the dock. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Did, did you cringe when you saw him on the TV as a, as a Bulls fan throughout the Derrick Rose era and – that whole fiasco. I mean, you could do a 30 for 30. You can't do a 10-part docuseries on that. But I hope one day we look back and there's a 30 for 30 about all the guys that were inputting on his situation. Because the, And that's the thing, man. The Bulls, they got some interesting things. Like, from, 90, from our lifetime in general, there's some interesting back scandals that don't get talked about enough. It's kind of like that parent who says, what happens in this house stays in this house. Right. That's and that's, that, you know. to me, that's Jerry. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just so, it's so weird too to sit and watch these documentaries. And like I said, when BJ got on the, on the, uh, on the TV last night, I went, Oh shit. My dad looks at me. Cause I watched it last night with my dad and he goes, what do you, Oh shit. It's just BJ Armstrong. I go, you know he's Derrick Rose's agent, you know, right. and that's the whole backstory of the whole Derrick Rose Bulls and him not wanting Derrick to come back and him being in Derrick's ear all the time. You know, there's a lot of different nuances that, you know, even between him and Jerry now, you know, that that's some of the things too that I want story on. It's this the tree on this has never-ending branches. I was of about just to say crap. this is just going to produce more and more. 30 for 30 docu-series, whatever, because, I mean, think about it. If there's anybody who had a fiery death with the Bulls, it was B.J. Armstrong. They did bring him back at the end of his career, but when he became an agent and he was Derrick Rose's agent, uh, I'm sure there was a lot of uh, a lot of heated arguments that took place. So even having him on here, I don't even know if he could talk straight about Mr. Reinsdorf at all. But No, I mean, that's why I think that, probably the doc is going to limit him to a lot of just team questions, right. things when he was there. That but be the first thing I'd ask him, what was it like playing for him? What's it like trying to re- represent a player that plays for him? That would be right. The, that would be my first question to him. Like, all right, I don't care if it has to, this is the last dance. That would, as a reporter, that'd be my first question. Like, and that's why, like, there's some of these, some of these reporters, I think maybe, maybe the backstory of this is being, you know, held underneath that way, it's it's got to flow. But to me, the first, like you said, the first question I would ask is that. But I would also say that with the whole last day in situation and the 98 season, BJ can speak on a lot of the things that happen in-house. So 
why isn't BJ, maybe he will be, why isn't BJ more in the limelight explaining how Jerry does business and how Krause was doing business? Not to, I mean, I know that he couldn't look at it in the moment as a player, but now he has this weird kind of different perspective that he can look back as an agent knowing how the business works that could maybe shed some light on some of these things that maybe, you know, guys like Horace Grant can't or Scottie Pippen can't. Or, I mean, obviously Steve Kerr being a coach, he probably sees it more often too. But I just feel like we're not going to get the questions that us diehard Bulls fans want answered because either they conflict the NBA and, you know, the cash cow that is the Bulls and or the fact that a lot of these guys just don't want to hurt their – they don't want to hurt their, their image in general. You know, they, they don't want to bring something in that they don't have to. You know, and I think that that's the problem with a lot of this is the way it's being shot. While I like it and I think it's entertaining, there's questions us diehards are kind of just scratching like, why isn't this being, you know, mentioned or answered? Right. Oh, I agree, man. I agree. Well, is there anything else you want to touch on before we head on out and ride off, ride off into the dusty trail here? Uh, I just want to say that I think it's amazing that Dennis Rodman can chug a Miller Lite and then hop on a motorcycle. I don't know if you saw that uh, nuance last night, but that was, uh, I think that's top five doc moments that I got right now. Yeah, I, I'm going to try to chug a Miller Lite and I'm going to try to ride my bicycle in the backyard. I, I'm actually a little bit disappointed that we didn't talk a lot about Rodman, but with that said, I mean, we knew his antics. You know, we knew. See, and I've had many people mention this to me. It's like, I can't believe you guys aren't all over this. I'm like, I guess me and you are ignorant because I always thought this was common fucking knowledge. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, I, <laughs> I thought people knew about this. I thought people knew that it was a, a dumpster. And that was fight. the. I was on my way home today, and I had caught uh, six seventy. Dan Bernstein had Will Purdue on. Yeah. And I was listening to that, and uh, it was interesting to me because he had shed a light on an error that the documentary has. If you kind of listen to that whole play out, how they had to go to Vegas and get Dennis, mm-hmm. that wasn't the truth. They actually pulled him out of his apartment in Chicago and Mike had to go there and it wasn't ever Mike. Mike never went. They had a, if you look in the doc, he was saying that there's a younger kind of assistant mm-hmm. who's there. And that was the guy who always had to go get Dennis. And this was not something that happened once. This was a occurring thing. And actually the point where Dennis was never at all of the practices. Right. Dennis had the, the reign to go in whenever he wished. And Phil kind of told him, hey, you don't have to come. You got to be here for game days. And if I say that there's a practice you got to be at, you got to be at that practice. So I, I wish that they kind of jumped into that because as a teammate, like let's say I'm Steve Kerr and I'm going to practice every day. And I'm working my ass off just for the six, seven minutes I averaged, you know, in the playoffs. And Dennis gets to just go to Vegas and skip, and he's at maybe a quarter of the practices. That's what happens. It's just like, how do you feel? (laughs) Well, how do you feel as a teammate? Think about it like, I mean, it's it's daily work things that you deal with. You know, why does he get to come in at six in the morning and then he gets to leave at three? Why can't I do that? I feel that. I feel that probably most of the players on the team were frustrated with that for sure. But at the same time, the tremendous respect that they had for Phil probably overshadowed that. And a lot of the thing too, before we head out, I do want to mention one thing about Rodman. 
Yeah. Before I got educated on everything about Dennis Rodman, like, you know, when I start, I used to feel bad for Dennis Rodman. And you, you know why I say that? It's because he always made it portrayed like he was the outcast reject. And or victimized. And, yeah, and Michael and Scotty didn't want to hang out with him. And it's just like, no, motherfucker, like, you were never there. So right. you never got the chance to build that, that if you were looking to be close with somebody, then maybe you shouldn't have went and fucked Carmen Electra 90 million times everywhere in Vegas or whatever. And wasn't it funny how he was, like, on the bench and he's like, oh, I thought I was Michael's guy. And then Scotty came back and I was, you know, back to the end of the bench. It's like, you, were, you weren't at practice. You, you know what I mean? Like, you weren't a scorer. Sure, when Scotty came back, and Mike didn't have to shoot the ball 50 times a game. He was going to be in Scotty's ear before you. You know, it's not it's not a matter that and, – and remember a couple of years ago, Rodman had said, oh, I never talked to Mike. I never talked to Scotty. Yeah. You know, that, it, it's like you, you wanted to – and then it just kind of goes into your, your victim kind of thing. It's like, you know, for me, like if I want to talk to you, I, I call you. You know what I mean? I talk to you. I try to get to know who you are. Right. And it just seems like that was not something that Dennis was ever interested in. No, he wasn't was, interested. He was. He was right, a playboy, man. He was. A he was interested in fucking Carmen Electra, which I mean, can you blame him? I mean, she was like maybe one of the hottest white women out there at the time. Like, look at him, man. Like he was. He, he dated Madonna, dude. Like he was an enigma, bro. Right, and I think that like a lot of this is not going to show how big like Dennis was. I mean, there were times that Dennis and Mike were, you know, the same level in a lot of ways. You know, I mean, maybe not in terms of player, but in popularity, like people knew Dennis Rodman. It's just, I don't know. We could talk about Dennis, like, but, but like you said, dude, a lot of this was just common knowledge. You yeah. know, it was, it's kind of funny. That's why, like, when they did the whole episode last night, I was like, everybody was I, shocked. I, I, I just wasn't shocked. I was just like, yeah, I knew, I, I knew a lot of this. Like, I didn't. Obviously, I didn't know the Vegas, like, the extent of that, but that's been reported before. You know, like it was just sure. all of this was just kind of like, oh, okay, so that's kind of what happened, huh? Yeah, I remember hearing about that, or I remember reading about that. You know, but for people that aren't educated within the team like that back in the day, this is a great docu series. But I do feel sure I, I do feel they could do a little bit more due diligence in helping paint the you know another villain in that as well. We've already talked about Kraus, but Reinsdorf is skating scot free. But that's all I got, man. Yeah, dude, I'm I'm good. You know what? This was fun because we haven't done a podcast together in a long time. But I just wanted to the viewers that always listen to us. Thanks for always listening, and uh, we'll be back out. We got some some bears things coming around. You know, the COVID's kind of killed us. You know, we were gonna actually get a rewatch our old podcast and get back on it just to just to preview little things for you. But you know, this COVID stuff, we just don't have much to talk about. You know, I mean, this is. Realistically, this is the best conversation I've had in a while because it's just something new and it's something that me and you haven't talked about yet. Right, Gra you know, grasping for straws, really. You know, I mean, that's just you know, content-wise. But thankfully that this is you know, this brought us a lot of content to talk about again. I mean, the Bulls are making moves present day, and now we're living in the past with the docu series with the Last Dance. But um, everybody, be sure to go to ontapsportsnet.com for all your Chicago sports literature and podcasting needs. Following us on Twitter at Bulls on Tap. At on tap sportsnet following me at buzz on tap and following my dude juice at juicy on tap we'll be back when we're back man you know maybe we'll maybe we'll make this a weekly thing and we'll uh we'll be back sunday night or monday after work and we'll uh do another recap episode of the last dance so everybody take care have a good week and let's go